Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week we celebrate the spirit of Manchester by speaking to somebody who's had an influence on the city. This week I'm joined by a star of stage and screen, most notably for her role as Hayley Cropper in Coronation Street, Julie Hesmond-Dalsh. She's going to tell us about the first music she fell in love with. The Smiths became a real massive, massive part of my life. Yeah. I mean, it became a total soundtrack to my teenage years in that little bedroom. And she'll also explain the impact getting the role of Hayley had on her life. But when I got it, I was absolutely thrilled. It was a dream come true. And I had absolutely no fear about feeling that I was the person who could represent this group of people. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester, an actress who first came to the attention of the, most of the British TV viewers as the first ever transgender character in a British TV series. Uh, she's gone on to play key parts in other amazing productions, including Happy Valley and Cucumber and Broadchurch. It's a massive list. 
Julie Hesmondalsh. Welcome to Humans Excess Manchester. Oh, thanks, Clint. Nice Is that the way to do we pronounce it, Hesmondalsh? That was really, really good, actually. Is that good effort? Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, it's great. I don't know I don't know why everyone struggles with it so much. It's like Green Alsh. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, it's like it was an SH on end. So everyone calls me Julie S. And I've, I just... I Julie S. I like yeah. that. The S. Do you think you'll ever become the, the S? I am the Hez. Amongst, amongst some, in some quarters, I am known. <laughs> La Hez sometimes. I don't know. I, I can live with that. <laughs> I, I'm known as the Boon in my house. Uh, I like it. They have to address me as the, the Boon. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning, Julie. I mean, we, we all know that you are the Lancashire girl through and through. Tell us where you were born and when. Uh, so I was born in church in Accrington, which is next to the better known Nozzle Twistle, uh, to John and Maureen, who were office workers who did a pools round on a Thursday night, um, and with a, a big brother, Dave, who's seven years older than me. Um, yeah, so I grew up there, lived there all my life until I was 18 and went away to London to go to drama school, mm. which was a bit of a culture shock. After, because I hadn't even really experienced Manchester. You know, we, I, my my place was the Lardy Dars in Accrington, which was this kind of like amazing sort of place where the stories of Brookside had come on Thursday night to sign autographs. It was alternative night in this cocktail bar overlooking the slums of Accrington with like plastic palm trees. It's like Brave New World or something. It was an amazing place. And so I never went to Hacienda because I was too busy. Uh, yeah, she me and round dance floor at the Lardy Dars and then went to London and became lost for 10 years. So I, I missed, I managed to miss the coolest period in Mank musical history completely. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got some, uh, I've got some photographs I can show you and some tales I can oh, tell you. thank you, thank you. Well, I have, I, you know, I do sometimes bullshit that I was there, do you know what I mean? Because I, I know enough about it now, so. <laughs> tell us about, you use the phrase there, which I recognise. I'm always fascinated when occasionally get reminded of things that have gone by. Uh, doing the pools round, explain that to people that oh, might not yeah, know what that is. Yeah, 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 not everyone would know, would they? No. So, so um, the 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 football coupons or the the pools uh, was something. It was like a that would be delivered to your door once a week, and you'd give a little bit of money. It's gambling basically, and you'd uh, <laughs> and you'd bet on the the fixtures, the football fixtures for that week. Yeah. But there was also spot the ball, which was the best thing ever. That was amazing. Where you'd have a still from a match, and you had to guess exactly where the ball was in this still yeah. and draw it on. The Oldham Chronicle used to do that every, every week, and yeah. it'd be a, yeah. a black and white picture. And back then, they'd, they'd, you know, black and white pictures in newspapers, all dots on it. Yeah. You had to guess where the ball was and post it off. And if you got near it, you won some money. Didn't you? Yeah, yeah. spot the ball. Absolutely, yeah. And so that was around. on my Thursday nights with mum and dad, with like this like cover over it, table in the living room with like all the money and the pools. And well, I watched Top at Pops, fame. Yeah. And, and disaster uh, movies. Brothers, brothers and sisters, you got siblings? <laughs> yeah, so Dave is my older brother. So he's seven years older than me. Yeah. Uh, and he's a, he's a professor of media studies at Leeds University now. <laughs> Boy, done good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he was a massive influence on my life because he was old enough to be right in the punk era. So his influence on me musically. And that's his area of interest as well. He's written books on cultural significance right. of music and what it means to communities and especially what it means to like working class people then and now. So so he had a huge influence on me that I was like way, way less cool than him. I remember getting bollocks off my dad for having a copy of Nevermind the Bollocks. That's oh. one of my, my first cultural memories <laughs> of our house. My dad going mad because of it, where I was still listening to Grease soundtrack at that yeah. point. You know. So he's <laughs> Dave Esmondalsh. Will I be able to get his book online or whatever? Oh, yeah, he's got quite a few, but they're kind of academic tomes, really. There's one called Why Music Matters, which right. is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. You should get him into one of these. It's oh, it's... no, he's brilliant. Yeah. He's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's fascinating bloke. So it sounds like it was an happy childhood. It really, really was, yeah, yeah. Proper I was working class. Yeah, 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 and and really, really loving ace parents who, as well as giving us a really stable and happy childhood, also 
really gave us the freedom to do whatever we wanted to do, mm. which, you know, I, I really value. And I know I'm a mum. I see how hard that is, you know, because all my dad ever wanted for us was for us both to work at a building society in Accrington. That would have made his life. And Dave went off. He ended up getting a scholarship to Oxford right. and being a professor. And I ended up like going to drama school and then going <laughs> being in Coronation Street. And he's a bit like, what have we bred? What have we bred more? Um, but they were so proud of us. And also, you know, I, I always have to give a massive, massive credit because they brought us up. They're, they're not political people, my mum and dad, at all in terms of like wearing it on their sleeves. Mm. Um, I think they both always like say that they were socialists, Labour voters or whatever, but but they brought us up with a, a real sense of um, right and wrong and about accepting people for what they were. And in the 70s and 80s in Accrington, there was a, quite a lot of racial division. Really? Yeah, there were, you know, and, and there were pubs that, you know, were right-wing pubs and left-wing pubs and there was a lot of racism and... And my mum and dad wouldn't have any of that and brought us up from the word go, knowing that that wasn't right, which is a very unusual thing for a yeah. working class childhood in Accrington, I think. So forever grateful to him for that. Sounds very similar to my childhood because I was born in Oldham. You were in Oldham? Clinton. I was born in Woodfield Maternity Home, which was a, a Catholic convent maternity home at the time. Oh. So I was born there in 59 and then raised in Shaw. First few years sure. lived in Shaw, yeah. yeah, and then moved to Aside, and then Milnrow, and then no stop for um, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just gone round M60. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there wasn't even an M60. No, no, of course they weren't. No. I remember, I remember watching them build the M62 because I went to school in Middleton, and they used to send us out on these five-mile cross-country runs, yeah. which I used to hate. I used to hide in a drain under the canal, <laughs> and then wait for my mates to be coming back from Tandalil Park or whatever, and join in again. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I remember seeing the M62 getting built in the, the early 1970s on these cross-country runs. Amazing. And I always thought, that looks like hard work. I don't fancy doing that. No, no, that's like working for a living, isn't it? Yeah. We both managed to get away with that. During those teen years or those formative years, what were the, who were the musicians that inspired you? Actors, comedians? What, what were the kind of um, characters that you focused I on? I suppose that uh, what I always state as, as I think is, is quite key to who I am as a person is the first two albums I ever went and bought with my own money. Um, even, Dave had been brilliant. So I remember, I think it was on my 11th birthday. He'll, he'll probably put me right on this. It could have been my 10th birthday. I remember I had a little group of friends around for a little party and he bought me Elvis Costello's Oliver's Army oh, and Blondie's Heart of Glass and David Bowie's Life on Mars, which were by a country mile, the coolest records yeah. in my collection at that point. I had a little orange kind of like record player in my room. But the first two albums I bought were Wham, Fantastic, and The Smiths. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And I bought them at the same time with my birthday money. Right. And, um, and The Smiths became a real massive, massive part of my life. Yeah. I mean, it became the total soundtrack to my teenage years in that little bedroom in church, like looking out over it. Reservoir and um, yeah, because you'd be 15, yeah. 16, I guess. Yeah, that time. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, did you ever get to meet Morrissey? I met him once. I met him once on an escalator at Kendall's, right? And uh, <laughs> it was he was so nice to me. I was I was in Corrie at the time, and I knew that he liked Corrie, but he was living in LA, so I didn't know whether he'd know who I were. So I had this like scramble, this mental scramble, thinking, does he really know who I am? Can I introduce myself? Anyway, I ended up just like double taking waiting for him at the top of this escalator and then as he came up i just said thank you and he smiled and he said 
I think you might have got me mixed up with somebody else. And I was like, huh, huh, I'm thinking, have I? No, no, it is absolutely unmistakably Morrissey. And then he went up the next escalator and I stood at the bottom just watching him thinking, I've got to say something else, but I can't think of anything. And he turned around at the top and I just managed to say, all my life. (laughs) (laughs) And he smiled really kindly and went off and he was like, he was very, very kind to me. He could have been very scornful of this like pathetic 20 odd year old boy. He was very nice. He's on on that that phrase, somebody who doesn't suffer uh, fools. No, no, and I was absolutely a fool. So I was very, I was very grateful for him suffering me that day. Let's talk about the uh, the getting into drama school. Did, Did you have designs on getting into acting as a teenager or was it like me? An excuse going to art school because I did so pathetic at grammar school. And when I left at the summer with no job to go to, somebody said, have you thought about art college? So I went to art college, not to become an artist, but just because it was one of the only options I had, having done so bad for the previous five years. So what was your what was your drama story? How did you get into the drama thing? Well, I think I, I, think I was really, really lucky because I went to state schools, obviously. And, um, and I was dead lucky that at primary school, I had this ace teacher called Mrs Mulderig who... Um, who got us into doing like elocution exams, obviously very successfully, as you can tell. <laughs> and, uh, and basically, it was just about public speaking and saying poems out loud and doing little scenes. And uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I, and I found that I was really good at it and really confident. And she really, really encouraged me and nurtured me. I mean, it was not in my family at all. And so that carried on. I used to love writing and still still like writing, but that, that was my main thing. Then I went to secondary school and, again, had some brilliant teachers who were really, really encouraging. You know, it's often down to that, and it? Just yeah. having a, like a couple of good teachers who just go like, you've got something in you, look, do it, just do it. Yeah. And then really, really crucially, as well as doing a bit of like local amdram as well, which I always forget to mention, it was like a massive part of my life, actually. But I went to a really, really good further education college, Accrington and Rosendale College, and um, we had a brilliant and inspirational teacher there, Martin Cosgriff who'd been a working actor himself, and he just made us all feel like... I mean, I think we were doing it because we just enjoyed it, do you yeah. know what I mean? And because we weren't very good at anything else. I did, like, theatre studies and film studies and um, dropped English, it was too hard. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, and he was just... Uh, and I think he was just like, well, you can be actors. I was an actor. Go, go and do it. Give it a go. You might as well. So he encouraged us all to audition for drama schools. None of us thought we had a chance. You know, we didn't think it would be the likes of us, basically. And... Um, amazingly loads of us got into drama schools all over the country i mean there were five of us at my drama school lambda which is like a really posh drama school mm. in london hills court yeah. at the time and there were five of us from accrington there at the same time which is completely disproportional do you it's know funny, do you not think that because i'm again being from oldham and being aware of what the oldham coliseum oh yeah like, and oldham theater oldham, workshop yeah. as well yeah is it a big thing? Is it is it a regional thing? I mean, do we have more a bigger concentration of these kind of uh, facilities to teach young people acting? Is it a bigger thing up here than it would be in other parts of the country? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that it's being eroded. You know that that further education colleges are, are being cut back almost to the you know point where they they they're non-existent. You know, it's really really hard now for further education. I know people who teach in them now and it's it's getting more and more difficult. It's getting more and more academic. So kids who, you know, that's that's sparking them, who have the practical side of it absolutely nailed, but we're never great at the academic stuff. Mm-hmm. They're lost souls now in it. Right. We've got a government that's telling us that, you know, it's unrealistic to, you know, want to have a career or a life in the arts or culture. You know, even though cultural industries are absolutely thriving, you know, as opposed to most other industries in country. Yeah. So I think it's really hard now. And really crucially as well, Clint, you know, me and my mates 
all got full grants to go to drama school. So I had to go and like audition at Preston Town Hall to like some, some civil servants <laughs> do me drama school or do, do me Lady Macbeth in his office. But I got a full grant and a full maintenance grant to go. And I feel so terrible that that's been taken away for young people now because there's absolutely no way that yeah. I would have been able to afford to go, you know, then. Mm. I mean, people find a way because people are amazing, but, you know, it's an extra hardship. And also I was able to stay in London after drama school and, and sign on. You know, I'm one of them that I'm, I'm like state sponsored in terms of that. I was on Dolph and claiming housing benefit for years, yeah. you know, like just messing around, building a theatre, running a theatre company, you know, unpaid with mates, doing a little bit of bar work on the side, bit of cleaning, you know, and it was like, and it was that and living with mates that was really as much a part of drama school as like, as making me the person I am today, you know, and, and, uh, and that freedom. I mean, Jarvis Cocker's talked about it before, you know, about that, those dolly years where, you know, we could just like mess around with some mates and like make up some tunes, yeah. write some poems. And then, you know, he ends yeah. up being Jarvis Cocker. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know whether that'd be possible now. What about your first paid job, the first time that you did your performance somewhere and then somebody came up and said, hey, oh, Julie, we're good at that, there's 20 quid or whatever. Oh, what was your yeah. first paid job? My first paid job was um, at Royal Exchange in Manchester, which were theatre that I used to be taken to with school and with college. Mm. And uh, and with a friend of my dad's who lived in Middleton who used to take us to theatre all the time as well. So it was always my dream. So I played a little part, but it was after the bomb, so it was in 1997. So it was at Castlefield in a big marquee in Castlefield Market then because of Royal Exchange. Changed, yeah, they obviously. moved it, didn't they? I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, they had to while they rebuilt it. So it's typical that like I, I managed to get into the Royal Exchange and it wasn't actually in the Royal Exchange. It was in a tent. But, um, <laughs> and I was playing two tiny, tiny parts. Just uh, I would play the night watchman and a maid. Uh, but that's the first time where I could just relax. I lived with my mum and dad in Aki. Yeah. Um, my mate Joe, who's also from Aki, lived with his mum and dad while we were doing it. And he'd drive us to um, Bokervale. We'd get tram in every day. <laughs> and that was the first time. And then from that, I got... Um, Oh, no, 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 that's not true. That's not the first. No, I got a telly before that. Yeah. I did a Catherine Cookson miniseries. Yeah, that was the first time I'd actually been given money for acting. I'd done fringe stuff unpaid before that. And that was amazing because that felt like massive money at the time. Put up in a posh hotel in like Newcastle as well. It was brilliant. It's amazing, isn't it? When you, the thing that you've loved doing since being a child yeah. suddenly becomes your income. It's like, I can't believe people today pay me for doing DJing in clubs that I used to do for nothing because I wanted to do it. Yeah. Being on the radio, people pay me for it. But I started doing it because I wanted to talk on the radio and play tunes yeah. and, and being in a flipping band, suddenly people throwing money at you. And... I know. And isn't it brilliant? It's like sometimes I, I still like fight guilt about it because I enjoy it too much and I feel like, you know, it's kind of in me that it's like that it's like a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you, you're good. One of the great things about you is, uh, like a lot of the other guests we've had on the podcast, you're good at giving back and putting something back into it all, aren't you? That's one of the things that really stands out about you. Well, I don't know. I, I, that, well, that's a very nice thing to say. I mean, I feel like I'm, uh, I feel like you have to a bit. You know, like what I say about feeling really, really bad for the next generation coming through who don't have all the the privileges that mm. I had. And when I say privileges, I don't mean in terms of like growing up wealthy or anything like that or going to a posh school. I mean that the state was just like holding me and nurturing me and encouraging me to do what I wanted to do. And I feel like... I feel like we let that slide, our generation. We just mm. kind of let that go. And I was the I was the dog end of the generation who had all those things in place. And and I feel like maybe part of what I try to do and not always successfully is like pay a bit back because of that, you know, because I've because I do feel like I grew up in massive privilege in that way. Let's talk about the 
the character that completely transformed your career in uh, 1998 when you um, got the job on Corrie playing Hayley Cropper. At that time, that's like 20 years ago. Yeah. First time there'd ever been a transgender character in a British TV series or soap opera. Yeah. Proper groundbreaking that one, it. Yeah. So yeah. was that what was that for you as an actress? Was it um, was it a dream job being handed on a play, or was it like this massive challenge that was a bit daunting oh, to know that it was a complete dream job? I mean, to to a ridiculous degree. I mean, you know, Clint, you know, you know how much curry means to people up here. You know, it's it's religion, same in Oldham. It? it is, it <laughs> is, and, and it is in Aki as well. And like, you know, I've always said, like, I could have been like at Royal Shakespeare Company at National Theatre, and people would be like, very nice, but when are we going to see you on curry? So part of it was a complete relief that I could finally be like, next Wednesday night, yeah. 7.30, <laughs> you can see me on curry then. But also, it, and this always sounds like a lie because it's so ridiculous, but I'd written down like a list of things that I wanted um, a couple of years before I got it. And when I was still like, you know, a jobbing actor, not working very much, struggling, living in London. And I'd written three things on it. I'd written a new hat <laughs> to be 200 quid in credit, <laughs> unheard of. And um, and to, to get a part in a soap that had something to say about the world that might change things. I never in a million years thought it would, would be Corrie because it, it never was. Do you know, it were like Brookie and EastEnders that used to do the big issues and everything. I love yeah. all that. I'm so like, horribly right on. I loved all that. <laughs> so I was just like, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be like whatever version of like Colin in EastEnders or Beth in Brookside, do something that shifts like public perceptions about something. Mm. I couldn't have dreamt that this would have come up. So when I got the audition for Corrie, um, they just all they told me about her was that she was called Haley and she was fun. So in my head, I was like the new Bet Lynch. So I went in a leopard skin coat, red lippy, blonde hair, went in, and the casting director like shuffled me into office and was quite sort of like quite embarrassed about having to tell me about it, but said, This is the role, this is what it entails. What I didn't know at the time is that actually it was a bit of a joke, that it was just gonna she was gonna be one of like a series of disastrous dates for Roy Cropper. But I didn't know that, and I, and I certainly was never going to play it like that. So I went away, went to Frontline Books in Manchester. Do you remember Frontline Books, yeah, yeah. that big political bookshop? And got, like, as many books as I could on transgender and transgender issues, read up on it, went back, met the producer, had a little chat with him, read about five lines, and I got the part they never saw anybody else for it. I mean, these days you've got to have got like a CV like Maureen Lippmann's. You've got to be able to tap dance, play an instrument. You know, I've got to do about 17 auditions, chemistry <laughs> tests. I mean, they just like got me in and just on, on faith, really. They'd seen me in the play at Royal Exchange. They'd seen me in Much Ado About Nothing. So, um, so when I got it, I was absolutely thrilled. It was a dream come true. And I had absolutely no fear about feeling that I was the person who could like represent this group of people properly and that I take it seriously and I do. I was only 27, you know, I was like really, really young. And um, my dad, of course, was just like over the moon that was in Corrie, but we're like, oh, chew. why couldn't you just get a normal part? <laughs> you were terrified that we're going to get loads of stick for it. And um, But, I, you know, and, and at first people, it took a little bit of time for people to get used to it. The transgender community and like the pressure groups within it mm. were very, very kind of watchful of it and didn't want it to be treated as a joke. It were different times, you know, and uh, and they were, you know, a little bit upset that they'd uh, cast me who isn't trans in that role. But I still to this day maintain that it would have been unbearable pressure to be in that show at that time mm. if you were actually transgender because it would have been a terrible. There would have been so much press intrusion and it would have been too much, I think. Yeah. So it was just at the right time. And when I left, I think it was just the time when 
she would have become a bit of an anachronism. You know, it would have been a bit... I think people would have been like, well, why is she playing a trans character? Because now I don't think that would be done. So it's it worked out absolutely perfectly. And I'm so proud of what Corrie did with that character, yeah. accidentally, because it just happened to be that people really took to Ryan early. But because of their relationship, we got thanked in Parliament, it moved the law forward, you know, Gender Recognition Act came through in 2004. We were mentioned specifically at that. Because you can change the world by being in someone's living room three Absolutely. or four times a week. You know, yeah. if you if you get to know someone, as you do with characters in Corrie, and, and get to like them and root for them, then the issues become secondary, and that's how you fight prejudice. Amazing. You must miss that. I bet you'd love to be playing that part again, wouldn't you, sometime? Yeah, well, I do. I think about it. I, I, it's funny because I've had such a full and lovely time since I left, so it's not like I'm I, I mourn for it, uh, 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 grieve it at all. But I, I think about Hayley and I've got and and she's sort of part of me but separate from me and it's I have this weird relationship with it. So when I'm watching because my husband writes it now, which is brilliant. So I've got like a way in I can like get all gossip, except I don't because he doesn't tell me anything, he's right tight. I used to tell him everything. But um but I can like watch it now and if she's mentioned, I get a proper like thrill. I'm like, Oh, she's still there in the hearts and minds, you know, it's like I'll always be part of it, I think. Yeah. And that's a really lovely feeling. Let's talk about another a young lady that became a big part of your life. I'm talking about Sophie Lancaster. This is uh, she was 20 when she got um, attacked with a boyfriend, Robert, in 2007 yeah. in uh, your pretty much your hometown, Accrington, Bakeup area. Yeah. And she was attacked by a bunch of teenagers, basically because of the way she and Robert were dressed. They were goths, weren't they? Yeah. We all know the story. Subsequently, you become the patron or a patron for the Sophie Lancaster Foundation, and you've actually ended up playing Sophie's mum, Sylvia, on stage and on TV. Yeah. Tell us how all that came about. I mean, I know there's obviously a regional connection. Did you know the family before this happened? No, no I didn't. I didn't know them. And um, and it actually came about because I had two chance meetings with um, Kate Comby, who's the uh, sort of the uh, social media. She, she does all the publicity for him. She's absolutely brilliant. She's a really great friend of Sylvia and the family. And, and I had two chance meetings with her, one just just before the trial, I think, and then one a little bit of time afterwards. And she gave me a wristband, you know, sort of iconic Sophie wristbands, yeah. both times. And um, But the second time I met her, I'd had this random thought, and me and my husband had, had thought, we want, to, we want to do something, and we wanted to create, like, a, a writing competition for young people. That's what we thought. And we thought we'd do it in Sophie's memory and do it as a way of spreading awareness about the Sophie Lancaster Foundation's campaign and also to encourage young people in state schools in Greater Manchester to write. So so we were thinking about it and we were planning it, and then I bumped into Kate again, and so I was like, I can't believe I bumped into you. I'm so glad I've seen you. We've been having this idea. So the first time I worked with them was was on that, and we created this big writing competition and did a big evening at the end of it at the contact. And, um, and just about that same time, um, the radio play of Black Roses had come out, which was... Um, it's, if, if people haven't heard it, I really urge them to try and get hold of it. It's a, it's a, it was an afternoon play, and it was interviews with Sylvia, actual interviews with Sylvia, the mum, uh, interspersed with poems by Simon Armitage, written as if they were spoken by Sophie. So Rachel Austin, a brilliant actor, played Sophie, and uh, it was one of those afternoon plays that you hear about now and again, where truck drivers are kind of pulling over at side of roads because so upsetting and moving, and mm. and absolutely, you know. It really, really did an amazing job of telling the story of Sophie and Sylvia from from Sophie's birth, really, right through until her death. 
um, it was massive success and um, Simon and uh, Suey's partner, who's a producer, wanted to make it into a theatre piece and Sylvia said that she wanted me to play her in that. So to speak her words that had been on the radio but verbatim as mm-hmm. if she was saying them in theatre. So I was still in Corrie at the time and that was just a massive honour to be asked to do mm-hmm. that. I was absolutely terrified because I hadn't done any theatre for years and years and I were pretty much coasting in Corrie, you know, having a nice time, just like bobbing in, doing a few lines, coming home. And um, so I took time off to do that and actually it was doing that play that... Um, that really started me on the road to leaving Corrie because I realised that, you know, actually there were other things I wanted to do and other stories I wanted to tell and, and you know, it was pretty life-changing for me as well. Not just other gigs, it's other stuff that's going to make the world better. And doing what you did with the, the Sophie Foundation is like, brought a lot of awareness again, you know, and uh, you mentioned that about playing Sophie's mum. I reckon on stage playing that part in front of Sylvia probably on at least one night, I'm guessing, would have been probably the toughest gig you've ever had. Yeah, well, she never watched it, actually. She watched the film eventually when we when we filmed it for BBC, uh, but she never watched it, and I was really glad of that because it was a bit too raw, really. I mean, people were desperately upset. I mean, there were, you know, most nights after we finished, me and uh, Rachel, th- there were no applause, and we never went on for a bow or anything. Mm. People just sat in silence and didn't leave the theatre for a good five, ten minutes, you know. It's like, it's a pair, you know, making it sound like because we were so brilliant. It's the words, you know, it was it was the writing of it. It was just absolutely brilliant. And Sylvia's words. And, um, you know, and people would often say afterwards, oh, you know, you, you, it must be really hard to play that part and put yourself through that journey of what she went through every night. But honestly, Clint, I'd come off stage, I'd come back into the bar and every single night, Sylvia and Kate and other people from Foundation would be in the, the bar selling um, merchandise, selling the wristbands and T-shirts mm. and stuff. And I just thought, this is what it is. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how much of a complete wanker would I be <laughs> to come off stage and to go into the bar and be like, yeah, it's really, really hard for me to play that part every night. It's really... Because Sylvia's there yeah. doing it, getting up every morning, you know, after the most horrendous, horrendous thing has happened to her, for a child to be taken from her in such horrific circumstances, mm. and like almost like the day after the trial, setting up that foundation and dedicating her life to changing things for other young people like Sophie and Rob, mm. it's just like so inspiring. It's like I do not know how people carry on after something like that's happened, and it's like, and that in itself was just completely, it was life changing because yeah. you're just like. You know, yeah, acting. You you put yourself into it, blah blah blah. But you know, you're not you're not living it. You're not mm. living it. And as with the early Cropper storyline, what what you did with the Sophie Foundation, the, just raised a lot more awareness and positivity towards um, you know minorities, whether it be popular culture to do with fashion, makeup, whatever. Yeah. I the goths or people don't realise how much prejudice there is against punks and goths. You know yeah. how many attacks, physical attacts there are on people. It's still rife in our community. It's like then professional footballers get it for being the wrong colour yeah. in people's oh, minds. It's like, yeah, it's like it's happening all the time and uh, yeah. I, you know, I just I admire you for, well we all admire you for doing what you do but when you choose these uh, platforms to work from and make the world a bit better. Well, uh, which brings me nicely to politics as well. You've always been a, a keen Labour supporter. Did that start at home? You said your mum and dad weren't very political when you were growing up. No, no, but they were they were they were Labour supporters always, but um but no they weren't the people who'd go out campaigning or even talk about it, you know. They 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 still don't really, you know, my mum's my mum's amazing. My dad I lost my dad a few years ago, but my mum um 
looks like a typical little old lady in her sort of pastel or Mike Spencer's top with her hairdo and everything. Yeah. She's like 80-odd now, but she's a firebrand. I'm not joking. She's just like, she absolutely knows everything that is going on. And she's quite out of step with all the friends and all the people <laughs> she hangs out with. But she's like, she's brilliant. She's like, she's really, really great. But um, but no, I think that me and my brother, um, I think I think Dave's political awakening came from punk, you know. Mm. I think it absolutely came from that. And, uh, and he was a massive influence on me. I mean, I remember Thatcher getting in when I was nine and being like, oh, it's good, isn't it, that, that a woman's in charge and him <laughs> putting me right. I think that was the only, the only, the only positive thing about that, that era, no, I, I, don't, I don't think it outweighed the negatives, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, so it's uh, so it, it's carried on from there, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and I fell out of love with Labour Party for all the years when they weren't what I thought they should be or wanted them to be. And I'm sort of back in love with them again now, really, right. because I, I feel like they... Well, it's just really simple for me. It's, you know, you can get all bogged down in detail, but I just feel like to make a fairer world, you've got to tax people with loads of money and spread it out and share it out evenly. And that's that's my philosophy, yeah, you know. And quite a simple one, isn't it? Let's talk some more about your career. So you've been on stage and screen now for, what, 25, getting on for 30 years? Yeah, 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 really? yeah. 20, yeah, about 20 more probably. Who, who've been your favourite people to work <laughs> alongside? Oh, Gosh, um, well, I loved working with Rachel on Black Roses. That was really amazing because we didn't just do it at the Royal Exchange. We took it on tour to sort of um, quite uh, deprived areas in West Cumbria after we did that. And that was one of the most amazing experiences in my life. It was just after I'd left Corrie so, because we did it again and then took it on tour. And uh, and I remember doing it in this little um, community centre in a council estate in, in Cumbria. And all these lovely, lovely people coming out to watch. And the the ceiling was too low to put our lights. And we had chip butties beforehand that they bought for us. And, and we all sat around chatting. And then we did the play. And just being in this completely strip-lit room, watching all these people listen to the story, fall in love with Sophie and lose her, you know, in the like space of 45 minutes. It was just absolutely amazing. And both me and Rachel, that's, that's bound us together forever, really. All my Corrie mates, David Nielsen, who played Roy, was just a joy to work with. But but all of them, all my factory girls, yeah. Anthony, it was just it was just a lovely place to yeah. work with Corrie. But I, everything I've done, Geordie, I've just I've worked with Geordie Whitaker on Broadchurch and then just on Doctor Who, and she is absolutely top woman. She's brilliant. You should try and get her on here. Yeah, like, well, she's have a word. I'll tell you, have a word. Oh, she's hilarious. Honestly, she's a <laughs> brilliant person. That'd be amazing. Out of all your career moments, what would be the one that, if you had to be judged by one, if it's that, that episode of News at 10 when you shuffled off this place and they, they show one little clip of you, what would it be? Would it be Ailey? Would it be Sophie? Would it be something else? Uh, well, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because I've always said, I read this thing with, with an interview with Mike Hamill years ago and he said, like, no matter what he does with his life, he knows that his obituary picture will be him as Luke Skywalker. And the thing, when you play a certain role, you just have to accept that. So it's like, even now, you know, I'm, I'm like, I like under my breath, mutting my full CV to people who are like, are you Haley? I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I was also in Broadchurch, Happy Valley, and Doctor Who last week. Because uh, <laughs> I'm always just like, let me move on, let me, but I know, I think it will always be Haley. Yeah. But you know, I, I run a little theatre company in Manchester now called Take Back, and we like do, um, we do immediate responses to social and political events, which sounds a bit dry, but it's not. The brilliant evenings, like short pieces, sometimes really funny, sometimes really moving. And what we've done is created a little community in Manchester 
a little tribe, really, of, of like-minded people. And I think you could say, oh, well, you're just preaching to choir. You know, you're all like-minded. You're all kind of like, you know, feel similarly. You know, there might be a few differences along the way. But what, we, what I think is happening at the moment is that there's a lot of emboldening of like the racists and the right. And I feel like there's people in massive, you know, power like Trump who are giving people a voice and giving them a lot of sort of confidence in their really, really dodgy views, I think. Mm. And what we've just managed to do, just in Manchester, we've got this little team of people together and we have these evenings and it emboldens us and it gives us a bit of spirit and a bit of hope. And I think right alongside Corrie, I'm, I'm as proud of that as I am of anything because we've got this little community of artists who are just like, just want to change the world in tiny little ways. Do you know what I mean? By, by telling stories and, and it, that makes me dead proud. But I, I know that that won't be on the news at 10. It will be me and my red anorak for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Manchester a little bit. Um, do you feel that the city's got quite a unique and special spirit? Oh, I really do. I, I'm so in love with this city. It's like... It, I, I, I wrote a book. I'm not. I'm not sure in this in. I, I wrote a book. Um, I got asked to write a book about my working diary for 2017. So it was over that year, and that obviously took in the the you know terrible events at the arena. It took in Manchester International Festival. It took in like everything that was going on culturally in Manchester at that time. And as I was writing it every day, I was just like, oh my god. I'm so in love with this city. It's like, because as I say, I didn't really grow up with it. I came in, I used to go to theatre with school. I used to come into Irondale. There was a bus that went from Accrington right outside Irondale and we'd do a bit of shopping there and get bus, go straight back. So it wasn't like I was like ever really ensconced in it as a teenager. I was a bit too far out where I were. And uh, and then I lived in London all the way through my 20s. It's only when I got Corrie that I kind of moved back up here and fell in love with someone and moved in and... And even up until recently, we'd always talk about, oh, maybe we'll go back to London, you know, when we're older, when the kids have left, maybe we'll just get like a little place somewhere a bit central, you know, blah, blah. And only a few weeks ago, I said to my husband, we're never going to move back to London, are we? And he went, do you know, I think I said, oh, we hell. I said, we're such manks now. It's like, I love <laughs> this city. It's like in the bones of me now. It's just, I think, culturally, musically, politically, um, just in terms of the people and the friendliness, the way that this city mobilised and galvanised after the arena and just the love that was shown then. I just I just think it's an extraordinary place. You know what it is, though? It's just some of its parts, isn't it? Because you've got, like, you from Accrington, I'm from Oldham. We've got these other beautiful working-class communities in places like Rochdale and Middleton and the suburbs. Yeah. And combined, the, the centre of that could only be a beautiful thing, couldn't it? Yeah. And that's what I think Manchester is, that I it represents. I think so, and it adopts us, you know, it's like, it's that, that really came out, didn't it? You know, with Tony's poem afterwards and everything, that it's like, it's not a place that you even need to be born to. You know, you, to, to be a mank, mm. you know, it's just, it just, you just become it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there becomes a point where you're just like, oh, I'm a mank. I'm like, properly, you know, I'm a Lancashire lass and always proud of that, but yeah. like... There's a bit of me now that is for every Manchester. Yeah. I'll, I'll just never, never be able to shake that off. I want to live here for the rest of my life. If I was to ask you, who are your favourite humans of Manchester ever? Who would they be, past or present? Okay, this is really, really hard. Okay, I'm going to say, I said, well, I see it's really difficult because I, I have these wristbands on my wrist that I always have on, even when I'm in like posh dresses and stuff. <laughs> um, one of them is for Sophie, and so that is for Sylvia. 
who I think is an extraordinary person who's done incredible things for this city. One is for my friend Alex Williams, who died as you know complications from meningitis, and his mum Alison has set up a foundation in Thameside that helps people with disabilities to access sports and culture. And then Ruben's Retreat, which is another amazing charity in you know where I live, sort of in um, Glossop and, and in Thameside as well, because Ruben died when he was two, and his mum has set up an amazing charity mm. looking after people who's you know uh, have got poorly children in their family or have lost children. And so these three women, to me, are just constant examples of spirit and courage and about using something really, really terrible in their life to move forward and do something amazing and change the world and dedicate themselves completely into changing things for other people in a similar situation. And I think that any one of those three women would give it all up in a heartbeat to have their loved ones back. Mm. But they're making the most of what it is. So, and they're they're all greater Mancunians. So I have a long list because I, I feel really bad about not putting Lem on it because Lem CC is like someone I absolutely love and adore. I love Tony Walsh, Louise Walwyn, who's a, a young curly, very poet, activist. I, I, she's absolutely brilliant. There's so many, but I think it's going to be Sylvia, Alison, and Nicola from Ruben's Retreat. Perfect. Julie, before you go, describe Manchester in three words. Gosh, it's so hard. Three words isn't enough. Um, okay, I'd say friendly, bonkers, alive. Beautiful. Julie Esmond Elsh, thank you for being a human of Excess Manchester. Thank you, Clint. That was Julie Esmond Elsh. Make sure you join us next week where I'll be speaking to Dave Mutri. Dave is the Chief Executive of Home Cinema and he's a Director of Culture for Manchester City Council. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Humans Excess and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us. Feel free to leave us a comment if you fancy it. We love hearing your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.